and remained there. But Elimelech and the husband, the husband of Naomi died, and she was left with her two sons. They took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Chilion died, so that the, women, the woman was left with, with her two sons and her husband. And she arose with her daughters-in-law and returned from the country of Moab, for she had heard in, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and had given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughter-in-law, two daughters-in-law, and they went on their way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters, why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that you may that may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter for me, for your sake, that the, head of the, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people, to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. The two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, she said to them Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem in the beginning of barley harvest. How many of you have found yourself in a circumstance in your life where you have uh, asked the question, um, how did I get here? What is going on? Why are my circumstances like they are? Maybe, maybe you can identify with the theologian David Byrne of the Talking Heads who said, and you may find yourself living in a shotgun shack and you may find yourself in another part of the world. And you may find yourself behind the wheel of a large automobile. And you may find yourself in a beautiful house with a beautiful wife. And you may ask yourself, well, how did I get here? Of course, he, he's not done. He goes on. And you may ask yourself, how do I work this? And you may ask yourself, where is that large Automobile, And you may tell yourself, this is not my beautiful house. And you may tell yourself, this is not my beautiful wife. You may ask yourself, what is that beautiful house? You may ask yourself, where does that highway go to? You may ask yourself, am I right? 
Am I wrong? And you may say to yourself, my God, what have I done? You may, maybe you've asked some of those questions. Um, I know for myself, I've often asked myself, how did I get what I have? Both good and bad. You know, I've got a lot in my life that I don't deserve. But I've also gone through some pretty horrendous situations, and so have you all, and you're probably wondering the same thing. What in the world happened? I had hopes and dreams and goals, and I thought life was going to turn out beautiful. Isn't that what they all say? And, and it's not like that. And then we come to the story of Ruth, because I think we need this story. We need to, to immerse ourselves in this. We need to know these characters. We need to experience what they're experiencing. And we need to see that there is hope for us. We uh, heard the word read a moment ago. And I won't read it again. But I would like us to walk our way through this first act of the story of Ruth. The book of Ruth is a story... It's a story of redemption. It's not a love story, although there's love involved. It's not so much a story of how one woman found the man of her dreams. Which, in a sense, does happen in this story. But it's a story of redemption. It's a story of how God took bitter circumstances and turned them into joy, turned them into hope, turned them into a future. Not just for the characters in this story, but for the characters in the Bible. And for you and me today, as we, as we engage with it. It starts out with... A man and his wife and two sons. It starts out in the day of the judges. And if you're reading your Bibles through um, uh, canonically, you would have just read the book of Judges. That's the book that comes right before this in our English translations. And the time of the judges, or uh, maybe um, a good way of, of translating that term judges is um, rulers or leaders, um, heroes maybe even. Um, these are not so much judicial people who sat on courts, but they're actually people who rose up, who, who led God's people, sometimes as a group, sometimes they did individual heroic deeds, and they helped rescue God's people out of difficult circumstances. Those were the judges. In the day when the judges ruled, or actually the judges judged would be a good way of putting that, uh, or the rulers ruled, or the leaders led, or the heroes heroed, uh, that's not really a verb, but during that time, it was a time of turmoil, it was a time of unrest, 
it was a time of, of 12 tribes of Israel trying to figure out who they are, who they're going to be in the land of promise. Um, there's, not a, there's not a central focus to the story so much. Um, if there's a focus to the story of the judges at all, it's that it's a cycle or spiral of rebellion, repentance, deliverance, and rebellion, and repentance, and deliverance, and it gets darker and darker and darker, and this theme is echoed throughout the story of the, of the judges. Uh, the very the verse come, that comes right before Ruth chapter 1 verse 1 in our English Bibles is this, in those days there was no king in Israel, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's where the story of Ruth happens. We, we read the story of Ruth on its own and we think, okay, okay, let's get on to the needed, let's get on to the action and the dialogue and, the, and, and there's a harvest coming up and we're going to see that in the next few weeks and, and, and there's a woman and a man and, and all of these wonderful things are happening but we forget that this is during the time of the judges when things were not good for God's people. In fact, they were wondering, where is God? How did we get here? You know, what is going on with our circumstances? They, uh, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine, which is pretty common in that part of the, of the world, and it was common in the Old Testament as well. Um, it should remind the readers of, of the various famines that occurred, uh, especially in the book of Genesis, that caused certain of God's people to leave from one place to to go to another. And that's exactly what's going on here. A man of Bethlehem, a small town about five miles or so away from uh, Jerusalem, but a small town in Judah, which is one of the large tribes, uh, he leaves there and he goes to sojourn. He, he goes to be... Um, he, he goes to be... Uh, oh, what's a good word for that? Um... A refugee of sorts, <laughs> right? He goes to sojourn and live in the the country or the fields of Moab, and and he says he has a wife and he has two sons, and and all of these are are just really simply stated by the narrator. He doesn't elaborate on them. He he leaves it up to us to to understand the what those places are and what they meant. Um, Bethlehem is a small, seemingly insignificant um, town. But for the people who were reading this, Bethlehem had great meaning to them. Because the people who were reading this were looking back on the time of the judges. They were living in the time of the kings. And when they heard the word Bethlehem, they perked up and they thought, ah, Bethlehem, kind of like you guys do, when you hear the word Bethlehem, you think, oh, baby Jesus in a manger, right? Well, in the same way, they were thinking, uh, our great king was born in Bethlehem, David. I wonder if there's a connection between King David, who was born in Bethlehem, and the story that we're about to hear. I wonder. He goes to the country of Moab. And again, if you've been reading your Bibles, you know that Moab isn't just any country. It's, just, it's not just a random country where there's food. Uh, Moab happens to be uh, the descendants of the son of Lot. You can read that story yourself. That's a good bedtime story to read to your kids, the story of Lot. 
<laughs> Check it out, and then you decide if you're going to read that story to your kids at this age. Um, but Lot has sons, and one of them is Moab. And Moab grows up and has a wife and children and, and becomes a nation of their own. Um, and this nation is, is a significant nation. They're, they're distant relatives to Israel. And so when Israel was coming out of Egypt, they thought, you know, we'll, we'll go visit with our relatives. And, and surely because we have this connection back through Abraham and, and Abraham's nephew Lot, uh, they will let us pass through their land on our way to the land of promise. But Moab said, we will not let you pass. I think it was somewhere like, you shall not pass. I think it was something like that. And um, you read about that in Numbers chapters 21 and, and following and realize that Moab becomes antagonistic. They, they become, in that, in that moment, an enemy of Israel, resisting God's people, resisting what they're doing. So that's Moab. In fact, uh, Moab had a king. His name was Eglon. And, and one of my favorite stories in the Judges is, is Judges chapter 3. And you can check that one out on your own. And Eglon was this big, heavy set king and and he ruled over Israel and oppressed them for 18 years until until a um, until a man named Ehud uh, who was a judge a leader uh, a warrior came and rescued God's people so that's Moab what would cause a man from Bethlehem and Judah to go sojourn in a place like Moab must have been pretty bad. Must have been pretty bad. Well, it was bad. There was a famine in the land. And so apparently there's no, there's no food in those uh, lush fields and, and rolling hills around Bethlehem. There's, there's nothing growing there at this time. And so he goes to live in Moab of all places. And, and then we have his names. And uh, the name of Elimelech um, means my God is king. I think it's an interesting an interesting thing to keep in mind as we move forward. And the name of his wife is Naomi. And Naomi's name means um, pleasant or, or lovely. Or, or maybe, maybe we could even translate it or, or think of it as sweet. Naomi's got a sweet name. She's a, she's a sweet person. She's a pleasant person. She's lovely. She's fun to be around. She's a joy. And, 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 and just being around her makes me think of, you know, butterflies and, you know, flowers and things like that. I don't know. Maybe she had that kind of personality. Malon and Kilion were their sons. And, and their names are hard to hard to translate. Um, I'm not even going to worry about them because they're just in the story. And um, it says they were Ephrathites. They were part of the clan of, of Ephrathah, um, which is also kind of another name for Bethlehem. And um, it's either a name for Bethlehem or a clan there or whatever the case is. Uh, they moved to Moab and they remained there. They sojourned there. They stayed there. They, they established themselves there. But in verse 3, suddenly this 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 move to this other land where things are going to be better for them turns out tragic because Elimelech dies. And then she's left with just her two sons. <laughs> but these sons then, they have, they have wives and, and it says they took Moabite wives. 
Malas were the only ones available in Moab. So they got married, and one's name was Orpah, and the, the other's name is Ruth, and, and it says they lived there about 10 years. They may have been married that whole time, or they may have just been married recently, but in any case, the narrator gets right to the point and says, well, let's, let's get right to it. Let me tell you what happened in verse 5. And both Malon and Killian died, so that the woman was left without her two sons, her two boys, her two children, and her husband. So the, the story begins with a woman who's left all alone. With no explanation from the narrator, thank you very much. Here's the way it is. Here's what happened. Here are the circumstances of this woman's life. It's, it might be hard to... To, to get our minds wrapped around what it would mean for an elderly woman, a widow here, with no husband, no sons, no heirs, no grandchildren, who's living in a foreign country in that time. Because if you're a widow whose children have passed on or you don't have any kids and you're all alone, nowadays uh, you might have all kinds of resources. You might have, your, you might have a job. You might have uh, a, a retirement fund. You, you might have uh, government assistance. You might have any number of things today in our culture that will keep you going. But Naomi had none of that. When, when, she is, when the narrator says that she was left without her two sons and her husband, she was left without provision. She was left without a legacy. She was left without a blessing. She was left without any security whatsoever. She was left without hope. This is a very bitter circumstance for her. And I can imagine... I can imagine her wondering, how did I get here? And, and, and the narrator doesn't say any of this, so I'm just going to throw out a few supposals. Suppose she asked the question, or she thought, that doggone husband of mine moved us out here and then died on me, and now I've got nothing. Or suppose she thought, these doggone Moabites who've been oppressing us for years. And because of that, we haven't been able to work the land like we have we wanted to. And because of that, the agricultural system started to collapse and we fell into a great famine. Doggone Moabites? Or maybe she thought, you know, if it wasn't for those judges who are so unhelpful, they they rule, but but they but they're always making laws and making decisions and doing things for themselves and not for me. They don't really help the people, like kind of like our politicians today. Uh, you know, maybe she's blaming the rulers, the judges. Oh, woe is me! I live in a time where these these people are so unpredictable, unfaithful. Maybe she's maybe she's thinking. I did something wrong. I made a mistake. Maybe she's thinking, my sons sinned against the Lord. And that's why God struck them down in their youth before they had children. 
Or maybe she's just thinking, God's out to get me. She's trying to come up with a reason for what's going on. Perhaps. Uh, perhaps. I, I'm supposing all of that because you know why? The, the narrator doesn't care. The narrator doesn't care how, why it happened. He doesn't tell us why it happened. He just says, this happened. And I think we have to... I, I'm spending a lot of time in these first five verses because it sets the stage for the whole story. We need to know this and we need to be ready for this because here's, here's the, the big idea for this first section. Bitter circumstances often have no apparent cause. There you go. You're looking at your life and you're wondering, did I make a mistake? Did I marry the wrong person? Uh, did I make a mistake? Did I, did I take the wrong job or go into the wrong career field? Or uh, have I sinned in some way and God is punishing me for this? Or are all the people around me just so terrible, they're causing me pain and sorrow and strife? And we're looking for causes. And on, uh, oftentimes, there's just no apparent reason for the bitter circumstances of our lives. And I think we need to hear that. I'm so, I don't have an explanation to you about why all of the bad things are going on in your life or the people around you. I don't know why. I've had people come to me and share their burdens with me and I want to say, here's what you need to do or here's what you need to think or believe and it'll all be better. But it's not like that. The, the narrator here doesn't want to give us an answer to why it happened, but he does want us to ask this question, what's going to happen next? Is there hope for this woman who's left all alone without sons or husband? What will happen? I want us to um, pause for a moment and consider that we live in a culture partly enabled by modernist thinking that seeks for a cause of everything. We look for a cause for everything. If you go to the doctor, the doctor will hopefully say, well, here's what I see, here's what's wrong, and what do we want to know? Well, how did that happen? Well, what caused that? We want to know why we got cancer. We want to know why our bones are deteriorating. We want to know why our our back is all jacked up and we want to know those things right is there an explanation maybe that will help us it won't help you it won't help you so far as it might help you avoid making similar mistakes if you can pinpoint it to something i think when um when i talked with uh one of our doctors in training and I said, well, it hurts when I do this. And she said, well, stop doing that. And that's really good advice. <laughs> but this is different. The bitter circumstances of our life go far beyond just, well, stop, stop lifting heavy weights and you'll feel better. We, we look for reasons, we look for causes, and then, and even in the church, we know that God is there, and, and somehow He's in all of this, and so we say things to each other. When they come to us, they're broken, they're downhearted, they're, they're discouraged, they feel hopeless, and we say, well, you know, everything happens 
For a reason. I hope you don't say that. At least not at that time. It may be true to a certain extent. And maybe we may be able to look, we can see things in the Bible that, that will support a view of there is a, a divine providential uh, reason for the things that we know, but we don't always have that answer. We don't always know what that is. It's not very helpful in that case. So here we go, Naomi. The story starts off on an upbeat note. Naomi is left all alone. So what's she going to do about it? She sets out, decides, makes a decision at some point to return. And that is significant. And I want you to keep that word in mind as we continue to walk through the rest of this, this first uh, act. She decides to return. She, she arose, it says. She, that's, that's a classic biblical phrase of she set her mind to do something. She made a decision. She got up. And she went. She decided to return with her daughters-in-law. They came with her. She heard, oh, we have a glimpse of hope. We have a, good, we have a reason to, to think positively about the future. She heard, while she's in the fields of Moab, that the Lord had visited his people and had given them food. There's hope, right? So she's returning with that hope. So she sets out from that place and she's going with her daughters-in-law, returning to the land of Judah. We see return, return, return. But then they pause. And maybe Naomi decided to have this interaction, this conversation, while they were a ways away from their, their, their sojourning in Moab because maybe she didn't want them to convince her to, to stay. But she pauses and she says, go return come on in no okay go she says return each of you to your mother's house you return home here we are on the road out of Moab on the way back to Judah and now she's saying no you 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 girls go back go back to your mother's house go back to that place and then may the Lord deal kindly with you as you've dealt with the dead, his, her, her sons and her husband, and with me. The Lord grant you, here's the blessing, the Lord grant that you may find rest. Keep that word in mind as we go forward. Each of you in the house of her husband. She says, I want you to be blessed by God. I want you to have that experience. I want you to find a husband. Go back to your homeland. Go back to your people so that you can find a husband there. There's, there's, a, lot of, there's, there's a lot of hope in that, isn't there? The idea of rest. The idea that in Judah there's food for God's people. The idea that in Moab there's a husband for uh, or, Orpah. Not Oprah, Orpah and Ruth. 
This is all hopeful language. And, and then the, the girls, they, they kiss her, and, or she kisses them, and they, they lift up their voices and they weep, and, and they say, wait a minute, no, we want to return with you. We want to go with you. And isn't that, doesn't that fill you with hope and, and excitement and enthusiasm? Like, she's not going to be alone. They're going to go with her. They want to be with her. This is all turning out so well for Naomi until Naomi opens her mouth again and the, the narrator doesn't tell us what's going on he just shows us by the, by, what's, by the conversation that's taking place and so Naomi then goes no turn back return my daughters why will you go with me now she's not looking for a reason she's saying you're fools to go with me there's absolutely no reason for you to go with me. And here's why. Have I sons in my womb, in my belly, in my innards? Am I, am I going to bear more sons for you to marry uh, uh, so that they can become your husbands? No. Return. Turn back. Return. Go your way. I am too old to have a husband. Now, she could get married. You're never too old to get married. You can get married, I guess, on, on your deathbed. But you might be too old to bear children. And that's where she's at. I'm too old to have a husband in that way so that I can have more sons. And then she, she comes up with this crazy scenario of even if I should have a husband tonight, even if I should conceive tonight and have sons, I'd have to have twins. They'd have to both be boys. And then they'd have to grow up. Are you going to wait for them? I mean, it's kind of crazy. But do you see how desperately hopeless she is? It's not going to happen. Will you wait? Will you? Why would you refrain from going home and getting married? Do the right thing. And then she puts it this way. I am bitter, bitter. I am exceedingly bitter. I am the most bitter woman you've ever known. And they're thinking, this is not the pleasant, lovely, sweet Naomi we first met. What has happened to her? What has happened to her? I am bitter. And it's bitter for me, for your sake. Oh, and then she says, the hand, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. The idea that Orpah and Ruth would go with her did not fill her with hope. Her bitter circumstances were so awful, so, so uh, horrible to her. All she could think is, if you come with me, you want some of this? Do you want to, do you want to experience what I'm experiencing? Do you want this to rub off on you? Do you want to live the way I am going to live, that I am living right now? I have a future. I have no future. I have no hope. I have no promise. I have no blessing. You want that? No, you don't. Go home. Go back. You don't want any of this. She says in that verse 12, if I should say I have hope, it's not a possibility in her mind. Hope is gone. So, boy, I thought things were getting better. As we read, there's food in the land of Judah. There are, there are daughters-in-law who are with her. They want to live with her. 
She's, she actually expresses a blessing for them, but the thought that they would actually go with her turns her more and more bitter. Here's the idea from this, this part of the story, that bitter circumstances lead to hopelessness. I mean, that's what she's going. That's what she's experiencing. That's what she's feeling. She's got nothing. It, it wasn't just that she couldn't pinpoint a cause of her hopeless, of her of her bitter circumstances. It's that it's give, given her less and less and less hope, and she hasn't received hope by companionship. She hasn't received any hope um, based on what good is happening to somebody else. She heard about good things. It's like. <laughs> It's like hearing It's like losing a child and then having your friends on social media post about how excited they are that they're pregnant or that they just had a baby or that junior just celebrated his third or fourth birthday. But what about me? What about my circumstances? What about what I'm going through? I have no hope. And the rest of these people are celebrating, but I am bitter and I am hopeless. Even others' joy can make us bitter and hopeless. Ruth, Orpah. Orpah is a good daughter-in-law, very obedient. She sees the wisdom of Naomi's advice to her. Don't, don't give Orpah a hard time. She goes home. We never hear from her again. Hopefully she found a husband in Moab. We don't know. She leaves, but Ruth clings to Naomi. I will not leave you. Maybe she's a little rash. Maybe she's irrational. I don't know. But she sees something in her companionship with Naomi. She doesn't want to be parted. I want to spend, I want to come back in a, in a moment to. Ruth and, and what she says and what she does. But suffice it to say, Naomi points out, Orpah, your sister has gone back to her people and her God. Go with her. Those are your people. That's your God or gods in Moab. And Ruth, don't, don't send me away. Don't make me leave you and return. I, I want to return with you. I want to go with you for where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. Your God, my God. And if that's not enough... She doesn't have in mind, I'll go with you and I'll stay with you until you die. And then I will do the good thing as a daughter-in-law and take care of you until you die. And then I'll be free and I'll be able to go home. She says, no, where you die, I will die. And where you are buried, I will be buried.
calls it down with an oath. May the Lord do so to me. Probably she made that gesture. I don't know. It's hard to say. May the Lord do so to me. And more also, if anything but death parts me from you. Whoa. Powerful. Those words probably sound familiar to many of you. It's, it's one of these the most loyal statements in all of the Bible. I will be with you. I will abandon everything to be with you. And then what does Naomi do? Breaks down with tears. She has hope again. She hugs Ruth and says, this is so wonderful. I'm so glad you're coming with me. No, that's not what she says. (laughs) The narrator says, she sees that Ruth is determined to go with her and she says nothing. That gesture of loyalty, that gesture of love from Ruth is no consolation to somebody who's absolutely hopeless. So that's what the narrator is trying to help us see. We, we, we see that thing of Ruth and we think, oh, the companionship, oh, the, the beauty of that relationship. It's all one-sided. Ruth is there pouring her life saying, I'm going to give everything I have for you. And Naomi, whatever. You want to come with me? Fine. Let's go die in Judah. But that's what she's doing. So, here she is in a hopeless situation. Nothing seems to be helping her get better. Not the assurances of others, not their companionship, not the rumors of blessing that happened to other people. And then, in verse 19, they return. They make it back to Bethlehem. They come, and guess what? The whole town is stirred up. They're humming with excitement. They're buzzing. Naomi's back. And so they ask, is this Naomi? They're saying, it is Naomi. Well, surprise, surprise. I thought she was gone. She was so dreaming. We thought we'd never see her again. Maybe they're looking at her going, is this Naomi? She looks old. She looks haggard. She looks worn down. This is not the pleasant woman we used to know. This is not the lovely and sweet Naomi that we used to know. All of this excitement, all of the enthusiasm does not get out of her get her out of her hopelessness because then she really pours it on don't call me sweet call me bitter because that's who i am that's what the almighty has done to me for the almighty has dealt very bitterly with me, she says. And here's, here, here she goes. Here we go. If she was talking to God, this would be a lament. But she's not. She's complaining to everyone else about her miserable circumstances. I went away full, and the Lord has returned me or caused me to return back empty. Why call me sweet when the Lord has testified against me, judged me, and the Almighty has brought calamity slash evil upon me. That's who I am. 
That's what I'm all about. Nothing you say is going to change that. Nothing you say is going to console me. Nothing you say is going to, to, to make me hopeful. This last part of the story I tread very lightly on. Because on one hand, she acknowledges God completely. She knows God is there. She knows He is sovereign. He, after all, is the Almighty Shaddai. He, after all, is the Lord Yahweh. He is her Lord. She knows that. Ruth said, I'm going to take an oath before the Lord Yahweh that your God, Yahweh, is going to be my God. That was part of Naomi's identity. But her bitter circumstances, and even for us, it causes us to doubt God. I say this, I go here because that's where Naomi goes. And that's where God's Word goes. But I don't know if I've met very many people who struggle with doubts about God, doubts about faith, who are not also or have not also dealt with very bitter circumstances. The times that I'm more prone to doubt God is when my life seems to be a mess. And then I think, why why, why do I have faith in a God who, who doesn't seem to be doing anything about my circumstances? I am miserable here. Why should I put my faith in God? Why should I, why should I preach the gospel? Why, why should I serve other people and love other people? Why not just be a miser? Why not just be a wreck? Why not just embrace all of my indulgences? Why should I try to do what is good and right? My circumstances are so bitter. God! And I think that Naomi is right there. She's experiencing that. Does God really love me? Does God really care about me? All these other people seem to be doing just fine. But what about me? Everyone else seems happy and pleasant, and I am bitter. Why is the hand of the Lord against me? Why has the Almighty testified against me? Why did He return me back empty? Why has He brought this evil upon me? Is God unjust? Is God unaware? Is God unloving? Is God unable to do anything about my bitter circumstances? And the truth is that as the narrator tells this story, he is heavily implying something about God. That God is king. He is king over our bitter circumstances. If you don't hear anything else today, I want you to walk out knowing that God is king. He is sovereign over every circumstance of your life. That is a hard truth. 
I, I don't know how us. All I can say is that's what God reveals to us in his word, as bitter as that may feel to us. Wait, wait a second. You mean all of the horrible things that are going on in my life or the horrible things that are going on in the world, all of the sin and all the death and all the wickedness and all the abuse and, and all of the rest of you saying God is king over that? And I'm saying yes. That's exactly what I'm saying. That's exactly what God is saying to us. It starts out with this. This is the time of the judges. This is the time of people who are flawed, humanly speaking, doing some pretty great things and then doing some really horrible things. Like putting their children to death because of an oath. Or like sleeping around with women and then coming back and saying, Well, God, how come you're not helping me be awesome? Uh, here's, here's people who are like, I'm going to be a priest of God, but then I am going to do horrible things to a concubine, a prostitute that I'm living with, and then I'm going to send her out in pieces to all of the tribes of Israel. This is the time of the judges. That's not God. God is just. God always does. We say this many times. In his church, God always does what is good and right and perfect. He is always just. He is a just God. If you are wondering about this, this, this hidden theme that's not really hidden, but it's here, and it comes back in almost every chapter, the word, the name Elimelech, my God is king. Remember, remember Jesus on the cross, Eloi, Eloi, or Eli, Eli? My God, my God. Elimelech's name is my God is king. The word for king is Melech in Hebrew. My God is king. And in the days when there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes, they missed the very king, the one who was their king, and they missed him. They didn't worship him. They didn't serve him. They didn't acknowledge him as king. They were so strung out on their own bitter circumstances that they failed to see that God is the king, that he is just. And guess what? God is aware because God visited his people. God came to them. He saw their suffering. I, I love, the, I love the, uh, the end of Exodus chapter 2. God saw his people. He saw their slavery in Egypt. And he knew them. He is aware. He is aware of the circumstances of our lives and how bitter it can be. And he visited them. He said, I, I have not left you. I have not forsaken you. I know you're there. And then uh, Naomi says something so um, significant that is just over so many layers of stuff in our English Bibles. And I'm sorry, I, I, I got to go there. But when she says, the Lord deal with you or grant you um, rest or deal kindly with you. He's, the, the, she is using that word chesed. That word in the Old Testament that most of the time is translated in this Bible as steadfast love. And in other translations, it's covenant love. And, and in some places, and especially in the, in the King James Version, it was loving kindness. It was this, this steady love that was not going to be taken away. That was not going to be moved. That was a love that has loyalty attached to it. 
I have not stopped loving you because I made a promise with you that I would love you. I'm going to keep my promises because that's what I do. I keep my covenants. I love you. I'm going to care for you in your circumstances. And that's what God is revealed as in here. He's king. He is just. He is aware. He is love. And guess what? Here's, here's the funny thing. Naomi doesn't go, God in general. God did this to me. God did this to me. She says, the Almighty did this to me. Shaddai, the powerful one. That in Latin, that word is omnipotent. Or where we get our word omnipotent, all-powerful. This is the God who did this to me. God is all-powerful. She recognizes that. And if God is all-powerful and is sovereign over the bitter circumstances of her life and ours as well, he is able to do something about it. He is able to give us hope. That's what's going on in this story. The narrator is telling it to us. And he's doing a great job. He's keeping us on the edge of our seats, I hope, as we're seeing this unfold through the actions and through the dialogue of of the characters in the story and, and what is happening to them. But he wants us to know that God is there. He is king. And so... Two things about Ruth. Ruth is about Ruth. She's in the story. But this first chapter has been all about Naomi. Right? To the very end of our chapter one in English, so so Naomi returned. And Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. There's a, there's a lot of phrases attached to the word Ruth. He could have just said, and so Naomi returned, because that's who the, who's the focus of the story. Uh, maybe even, so Naomi returned with her daughter-in-law. But no, the narrator wants us to say, see Ruth. And to think of what's going on with her. The fact is, Naomi returned to her homeland. Orpah returned to her homeland. And Ruth returned to not her homeland? She's a Moabitess. She came from the country of Moab. And the narrator keeps, is like, you see this? She doesn't belong here, but yet, what does she do? She's returning too. How is that? Wait, wait a minute, she's never been there. How can she return to a place that doesn't belong to her? How can she return to a place that she'd never known before? How can she return to a God who she never served? How can she return to a people that, has, that she's never been known by or she's never known? And here's, here's the thing about this idea of return. It is the one thing, the main thing, that the Bible calls us to do. To return. 
It's in the old, it's, all, it's in all of the stories from beginning to end. And then when we get to the New Testament, what does Jesus say? Repent, turn back, and believe. John the Baptist says the same thing. The apostles say the same thing. To turn to God. To return to God. Even a God we didn't have any awareness until a moment ago. Uh, We find ourselves going to God and we find ourselves in our true home. We find ourselves with our true God, our true King, the one we've been waiting for, longing for our whole lives. That's who we belong to. And so when Ruth returns, goes back, that language is the language of what we might say conversion. She has a real conversion experience. She's abandoning everything else in her life and she's making a complete, absolute, permanent exchange by faith. She doesn't know what's going to happen. All she knows is that this woman is bitter and she's going back to die in her homeland and I'm going to go with her. I don't know what's going to happen. As, as an audience, we're reading the story, we're thinking, something's going on here. I think something's going to happen. But Ruth wasn't aware of that. All she knows is that this woman has the truth that I need. So, she has, she has left everything. Where you go, I will go. That's where I want to be. Where you lodge, I will. That's the place I want to be. Your people will be my... That's the people that I want to be loyal to. That's the family that I want to be a part of. Your God will be my God. I want your God. I want Yahweh. I want Him to be my God. I'm, I'm forsaking everything and there's no going back for Ruth because she's going to go there and she's going to die with that God. And she's going to be buried with that God. She left everything, and it ought to it ought to help us understand, see the cost of returning. In fact, um, Jesus helped clarify that cost in Luke chapter fourteen, verse twenty six. One of some of the most disturbing and powerful words that Jesus stated. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. That's that's pretty powerful. And I think he meant it. When you go to Jesus, you go for everything. He is everything. Complete. Absolute. Permanent. It's not just a cost, though, right? There is a blessing. In another place, in the Gospel of Mark, in fact, in Mark chapter 10, he says something very similar to that, and he says, look, anyone who's ever forsaken all of these things will get as much back in this life and in the future eternal life. The the apostles help to clarify what returning looks like and and feels like when they said in Acts chapter 3, repent therefore, repent, turn around, make that U-turn, and turn back 
and return. That your sins may be blotted out. That times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. That was, that's the promise, that's the blessing of returning to God. It is costly. But there is more hope, more joy in your presence. The psalmist says there is fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. It doesn't get any better than returning to God. But we also see something in Ruth. Not only an example for us in how we ought to return to Him, but we see an example. Bear with me. We see something of what Christ has done for us who left his home, left his glory, left his throne to live and dwell among a people whom he loved with covenant love. A covenant established by his own blood and his death on the cross. That, that gives us hope. Because we know, even if we don't know how things turn out with Naomi and you never hear another message from this book and you never read on and hear how it ended, we know, and you need to know right now, there is hope in Jesus for this life and in the next. We are never alone. He's, he is like the Ruth that we need who humble outsider from our perspective came down in our midst and said I'm going to be your your God I'm going to love you I'm going to be loyal to you even to death but the God who did that is also our king whom death cannot defeat he's not an Elimelech who will die and leave us destitute Jesus died and rose. That's the difference. He is our king. He is our lover. He is our judge. He is righteous. He's faithful. He's aware. Will you return to him? Wherever you are, wherever, whatever you've got going on, whether you've made a decision to follow him at one point or another, all of us every day need to return to our God. Every day. Would you do that today? Deal with whatever it is that's in your heart that you need to turn from and turn to Jesus. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I thank you for your love for us. I thank you for your word to us um, that, was, that was motivated by your steadfast love, revealing to us all that we need for life and, and for godliness. And Lord, I just pray that you will help us by your grace, in faith, let us return to you, God. I pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen.